Thanks again to all of our teachers and volunteers of both nursery and children's church. Uh, Two mostly behind-the-scenes ministries that um, allow us to worship and really reach our kids in a special way. So thank you um, to all those who take the time to do that. All right, we're going to continue our series this morning in Luke's Gospel. The series is called Meals with Jesus, um, in which we're looking at Jesus at meals in the Gospel of Luke. Um, it's been said that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus was either going to a meal, he was at a meal, or coming from a meal. And I know I've said that each week, but if you've been maybe reading along in Luke's Gospel, it just keeps happening. It just keeps jumping out. He was always at meals. Um, it's been said in Luke's Gospel that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. This is one of his primary ministry strategies. A long, unhurried meal into the evening with all different sorts of people and all different sorts of things happening in that moment. Our passage this morning is Luke chapter 14, verses 7 to 24. And that's printed in your bulletin, which you can follow along um, on a phone or in a Bible if you have one of those as well. Um, One of the really fascinating things as you're turning there um, about Greenville is that Uh, And I was just talking to maybe one of you about this recently, is that you can drive um, maybe only a mile in a different direction in our city and then feel like you're in a totally different world. I mean, our city changes like that. Within a couple miles, you drive any direction and you're like, okay, this feels very different than where I just was. Um, This was highlighted for me about five years ago. I did this thing that I think it's put on by United Ministries. It's called the Poverty Tour. And they actually put you on a bus and they drive you around for an afternoon and they, and they give you a tour. There's a woman, I forget her name, she's wonderful. She's sort of a, um, she's kind of, for lack of a better term, sort of a poverty historian in Greenville. And she will sort of drive you through different neighborhoods in our city and explain, here's why this neighborhood developed this way, here's why this neighborhood developed this way. And you would be in a more impoverished neighborhood and you would see really narrow streets, Um, And not much infrastructure, not great drainage, no sidewalks, no streetlights, no city parks. You would literally cross over one main road and then instantly like the size house changes, streets have gotten widened, drainage is better, sidewalks are poured, streetlights are in. It's often a different school district. It's amazing how quickly that can change. And she would take you through and sort of show you the history of why this happened this way. Um, But it was this unbelievable moment of you cross one main road and you are in a different world. And that's sort of how that Pleasantburg right out here can feel that way too. We're just different sides of Pleasantburg. It feels like a different world. Like, whoa, what, where am I? All right, when Jesus talks about what his kingdom is like, it's as though he's describing a completely different world where he describes something about it. You think, wait, 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 where am I? What are you talking about? And then to uh, sort of imagine um, people living like this in community together, truly embodying these kingdom values, you think, I don't know that world. This would feel completely different. And we get a glimpse of that in our text today. It's, it's a very upside down kingdom of God that's being described. A little context for our passage before I read it. Jesus is once again at a meal. He's dining with the Pharisees. Pharisees were religious leaders of the day. Specifically, he's being hosted by a ruler of the Pharisees. Um, So there were lots of important religious people there. The meal took place on a Sabbath day. And there was a discussion prior to our passage between Jesus and some of these Pharisees as to whether or not it was okay to heal somebody on a Sabbath day. And as you might imagine, Jesus went ahead and healed the man. And it left the Pharisees speechless, where the text literally says they didn't know what to say to him. Because Jesus just did this thing that they were not comfortable with because he was pushing their interpretation of the law. He was um, pushing the envelope on how they interpreted it. 
That's where our passage picks up in verse 7 in chapter 14. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 12, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these sayings, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these sayings to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. The servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. Oh, would you speak to us now? We need to hear it. And we can't hear it unless you open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts. So Spirit, would you meet us during this time, this living and active word, would you apply it deep into our hearts and our souls and our lives. And Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so our passage unfolds over a few scenes at this dinner party, which we just read. Um, And in these interactions, Jesus is going to tell us two things. These are our two points for this morning. He's going to tell us where to sit and who to invite. Where to sit and who to invite. First, where to sit. All right, so after this Sabbath healing interaction with the Pharisees, he turns to tell them a story or a parable, which he often did. Jesus often taught with stories which is really fascinating and important to know about Jesus. He loves stories. He used them to teach. In verse 7, we learn why he tells a story. Look at that verse. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Okay, so he watched these Pharisees who took their seats and they chose the best seats in the house, the ones that would show them to be honorable And for Jesus, like this often did, this provided a teaching moment for him. So let's talk about where the Pharisees wanted to sit. Where do the Pharisees want to sit? He's watching them take the best seats in the house. He says in verse 8, 
When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invites you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. Then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. Right, where'd they want to sit? They wanted to sit in the places of honor. All right, so in this context, it's likely that the seating would have been arranged in sort of like a U-shape. And the, um, the host would have been at the center and then the most important guest would have been at either side and it would have worked its way out further and further away. But the most important were right uh, near the host. Those were the honorable seats. Maybe think about like a modern day wedding reception. Um, there's often a head table, right, where the bride and groom sit. And a lot of times at that head, head table, there are the, um, the groomsmen and the bridesmaids. Um, and then maybe closest to that head table, you have the family of the bride and the groom. And then it sort of works its way out. If you've ever been to a, a wedding where there, that's the setup of the reception, maybe you've sat at that head, ta- head table. It feels kind of important. Where you kind of sort of feel like, you know, like, kind of feels good to be at the center of this thing. And then if you're at a wedding reception where you're not at that table, it can feel intimidating. Like you want to go say hi to the bride or groom. You're like, wow, that's, that's the head table. Feels like a big deal. I remember this was, you know, maybe almost 20 years ago at my brother's wedding. I was in the wedding and they, in, in the reception, they literally had the head table up on a stage. So not only were we at the head table, we were on a stage looking down on everyone else. And I was like, you know, 19 at the time, just, you know, eating my chicken, um, just feeling like I was pretty important. But, but, you know, and then there would be like the, the second cousin who brought her boyfriend at the very last minute. She's at the table in the back by the bathroom. You know, and there's sort of, it feels like, yeah, there's like this sort of, there's some thought behind this seating. Um, All right, so to use this image, the the Pharisees were after those seats up on the stage. They wanted those seats, those places of honor. Why? It was their religious reputation, self-importance. We saw this a few weeks ago where Jesus unloaded on the Pharisees and lawyers at another meal, saying how much they love. He went through the series of woes on each of them, saying how much they love the external appearance of being seen doing just the right spiritual thing at just the right time. It was this um, external spiritual show for them. And then in our text, getting these seats of honor would have played right into it with this, in their minds, they're thinking, oh, we are important, we need to be up front, those are our seats of honor. So for them, external appearance always trumped the inward godliness, the inward reality of faith for the Pharisees. But Jesus warns them in our passage and he says, don't do it. Don't go for the best seat in the house because what if the host comes and you have to get off the stage, you have to go sit with the second cousin in the back of the room? It's going to be, you know, it's going to be shameful. You'll be humiliated to have to walk back there. Jesus says to the Pharisees, look, I I know what you're doing. I see where you're sitting. I see your hearts. Don't don't sit there. They wanted the seats of honor. All right, where does Jesus want us to sit? Where does Jesus want us to sit? Look at verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. He's saying, I want you to be the kind of people that choose the seat back by the bathroom, that choose the dishonorable one in the very back so that when the host comes, he might move you forward. So instead of shame to go backwards, you're honored as you come forwards. He's saying, start with Humility. Start by being humble so you avoid being humiliated and having to walk to the back 
of the room. And he uses this meal, um, this little story about a wedding feast to make a kingdom point, to give us a better understanding of this upside down nature, this otherworldly kingdom he's describing. Look at verse 11. He says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So if we seek glory on our own terms, he's saying it's going to come crashing down. But if we seek humility, we'll ultimately be glorified. One scholar, Phil Riken, puts it this way. He says, the world tells us to elevate ourselves, but Jesus says that if we do, God will bring us down. He will humble our pride. I heard one pastor phrase this this way. He said, we should willingly die the death that Jesus is calling us to die so that we don't die the death he's warning us of. Willingly die the death he's calling us to die so that we do not die the death he warns us of. And because a sinful nature in our hearts is bent towards elevating ourselves, right? It's deep in our hearts in ways we don't often realize. And it's so baked into the culture around us. Um, so it, it's in our hearts, right, to exalt ourselves. And then along comes social media, right? Um, giving us this beautiful, fun way to craft our image. And if we're not careful, you know, manage, manipulate how we come across to others. And it just sort of, it's ready for that self-exaltation, just to plug, plug, plug and play in social media. Um, so our hearts are inclined to exalt ourselves, and then we're asked to create a resume for our professional career, right? And there's coaching on how to you know, talk about your work experience and education, even down to how to use specific vocabulary in order to get noticed and stand out, right? When our hearts are already bent towards self-exaltation, then we're asked to craft a resume. It's just, it's everywhere around us. Of course, there's nothing wrong with social media, per se, or having a strong resume. But those are just two examples of how everything around us sort of tees us up for self-exaltation. And the world not only expects us to do it, but encourages us to do it. And it's easy to, um, to distance ourselves from the Pharisees here, but, but our hearts share the same desire for self-exaltation. I don't know if you remember, um, last week during our Confession of Faith, we talked about the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus. It, it talks about his humiliation, that he was born in a low condition, under the law, experiencing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, death on a cross, dying and being buried. Christ experienced humiliation, but he also experienced exaltation, right? In his resurrection, his ascension, his going back into heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, coming again to judge the world. But there's this pattern that Jesus set his humiliation came before his exaltation. And now to follow Jesus means to follow that pattern. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. We experience this in small day in and day out ways in this life. But this also applies more deeply, more ultimately to our standing before the Lord. Um, it forces us to grapple with the question, have I honestly humbled myself before God? Have I humbled myself before God? Have I fallen flat on my face before him, pleading nothing of my own merit or reason to be able to stand before him, but completely trusting Jesus and his work alone on my behalf? If so, that type of humbling leads to exaltation by Jesus on the last day. But if not, if you're standing on your own resume, your own goodness, your own works, your own exaltation of self before God, then you will be eternally humbled on the last day. So following Jesus invites us down this path of humility, of choosing humility, which will ultimately lead to exaltation in him and in his kingdom. All right, so in the kingdom of God, 
this new life and world we've been called into, our priorities of where we sit at the dinner party get totally flipped on their head. We're told to choose the lowest seat. After he tells us where to sit, he goes on, he tells us who to invite. Let's talk about who to invite. All right, so he just spoke to the guests who were going after those honorable seats. Now he turns in verse 12 to the man who invited him to the party. He's already offended the noteworthy guest. Now he's going to offend the host. What does he say? When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Okay, same questions for this one. Who did the Pharisees invite? Let's talk about who the Pharisees invited. It's pretty clear by the text. They invited those who could repay them. Those who could help them in return. Those uh, not only whom they liked, but who would also boost their reputation. You know, sort of like, the, hey, did you see who so-and-so was eating with? Who was at the party with them? Um, think about like the concept of networking in the professional world for us in, in our day. Um, it's you know, intentionally building relationships with other people that will hopefully one day prove to be like mutually advantageous for you from like a professional standpoint. You're not sure when you might need to cash in on that, but you're always sort of thinking, I need, I need to network just to always be ready so that I might be helped by someone or I can maybe help them in the future. There's this like mutual advantageous relationship to networking. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. That's sort of how our world is set up in lots of different spheres. But it's easy to take that sort of networking approach to our hospitality and friendships and lives in general. Who can I hang out with that will ultimately benefit me or make me happy or serve me at some point? And if we're honest, as we, as we look at this text, it's really hard to jump on the Pharisees for this one, right? It's hard to see what's wrong with what they're doing. Jesus, are you really saying, like, don't eat with your friends? Or don't eat with family or your wealthy neighbors? Is, it, is that wrong to do? Let's unpack a bit more of what Jesus is saying. Let's talk about who Jesus wants us to invite. Jesus says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. These categories he's using here are very specific. Listen to what Riken says about this. He says, under Old Testament law, the physically disabled were barred from participating as priests in the temple worship of Israel. And people like the Pharisees used this law. This is where it got bad. People like the Pharisees used this law to justify their prejudice against people with disabilities. But according to Jesus, disability is no disbarment from the kingdom of God. The lame, the crippled, the deaf, the dumb, and the blind are all invited to sit at his table. So in using these categories, Jesus is pushing back against their use of the law to narrow the categories of who to love and who not to love, of not including certain types of people. Um, he's not saying don't eat meals with your friends and family and others. This idea of uh, what could be called reciprocal hospitality. And we know that because that's clear in other places in Scripture. Early in the book of Acts, the New Testament church is told um, to break bread in each other's homes. There's this mutuality of, of hosting one another in homes of friends and families. That's not what he's telling us. But this leads Jesus into another story about salvation. This is where he's going. Because this man interrupts him. You may have noticed this. It seems a little bit um, sort of out of the blue. He says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And scholars look at that and say that he's probably trying to break the awkwardness of Jesus's harsh words here. He's probably trying to lighten the mood a little bit. You've seen things like that happen before. That's probably what this man is doing. 
um, to, to lighten it up a little bit, but Jesus doesn't bite, right? He moves straight in and doubles down on another parable, verses 16 to 24. I won't reread it word for word, but here's what happens. He tells a story about a man that planned a big banquet, invited lots of people. Uh, in this day and age, there was typically a double invitation where you would announce it because it wasn't, he wasn't like texting his buddies about the party, right? You would announce this banquet, you know, maybe months in advance, plan, 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 plan. When it came time for it to come and actually happen, you would send out a servant to go to your invitees and say, all right, it's time, we're going to do this now. So he plans the banquet, he invites many, it comes time for the event, he sends a servant out to those who were invited to say, all right, it's time, let's have the party now. But then there are these lists of excuses, the original guest list, they're making excuses. I bought a field, I bought oxen, I got married. Their excuses then were no better than our excuses now, right? Uh, and, you know, commentators point out that these are, these are not valid excuses. They're just that, excuses. The servant reports back. He says, hey, look, I went to those original guests. They're not coming. And so the master, the host, gets angry. He says, well, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. What does the servant do? He goes and does that. And they come in. He says, hey, there's still room at your party. What do you want me to do? He says, go even further. Come in and tell people to come in. I want my house full. And then at verse 24, Jesus sort of transitions from telling the story um, to sort of being the one in the story. And he says, for I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. All right, zoom out. He just told them not to invite people to dinner who can repay them, but instead invite those who can't repay you. And then immediately he tells this parable about his kingdom. What does this mean? What is he getting at? In this parable, the host of the party is God the Father. The servant going out and doing the inviting, that's Jesus. The original guest list are the religious leaders of Israel who are in this moment being invited into the party, but they are refusing the servant. They will not go to the banquet. They're making up excuses to not go in. The next group invited, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, those who were barred from serving in the temple, and whom the Pharisees had discriminated against. You could say these were the outcasts of Israel, the ones who were not allowed in, yet still Israelites. What? They're now invited in. The last group invited, it's the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people who are invited into this banquet now. What's he saying? Everyone's invited to my banquet. This guest list is not what you would have thought. It has been flipped on its head. Those whom you thought would be invited, not only, and not only invited, but in the seats of honor, will not even be at the party, he's saying. And those whom you thought wouldn't even be at the party are now the most honored guests. It's the upside-down nature of this banquet and the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. I read about this high-end restaurant in Scotland that um, set out to make really excellent food um, and also to feed the city's homeless at the same time. Um, in most ways, as I understand it, you would go and dine at this restaurant and it would be like a really cool, sleek, modern design, um, excellent food, um, a great chef on staff, and excellent um, wait staff. The service is amazing. And so in many ways, it felt like a really high-end restaurant. The big difference is they would set aside some of their proceeds throughout the week and one day a week, they would only serve the homeless in their city. But they insisted on serving the homeless in their city with the same level of wait staff service, same um, quality of food. And so you can imagine what it would be like to walk into this restaurant in Scotland. Um, High-end, fancy, pricey. And then you look around and it's full of homeless people. This is what the upside-down kingdom of God is like. This is what it looks like. It's, it's a shocking picture, so different than what you might expect. 
And that's what we see Jesus uh, teeing up in this meal with these Pharisees in our text this morning. What does he do in the meantime? He, he disrupts another meal. He disrupts another meal completely. He offends the most honored guests. He offends the host of the party all by talking about what his coming kingdom is like. All right, to land the plane. This tells us a lot about Jesus. Let's just highlight a couple things about Jesus and life in his kingdom. We could say so much, but just two things. The first is this. Heart transformation in Jesus is the only way to true humility. Heart transformation in Jesus is the only way to true humility. Um, If we walk away from the first half of this text trying to be more humble by focusing on humility, we're never going to get there. Um, It comes from being near to Jesus and his transformation of our hearts. And what transforms our hearts? It's the good news of his life and death and resurrection. Um, The message he came proclaiming that none of us are good enough to get into that banquet on our own. Uh, Years ago when I lived in St. Louis for seminary, there was a PGA Tour event, that's golf, um, a PGA Tour event that came through, you're welcome, that came through uh, St. Louis. And um, I, I'm not a big golfer, uh, as I've stated on record multiple times, but I had some friends who love golf, and so we said, all right, let's, let's go. And, um, you know, we had these tickets, and I think if I remember right, that you, you sort of had like a lanyard and like a plastic sleeve, the ticket went in, and they'd scan it at the front of the gate. And you had to have the ticket to get in, right? And then once you, once you were scanned and they scanned the ticket, you walked through the front gate, then this whole golf course is open. And it's, you know, this beautiful part of town, beautiful golf course, breathtaking views. We're watching the pros walk by. It was amazing. I'm not even a golfer. It was amazing. And uh, we just had this amazing day, just, you know, five of us seminary students walking around um, this golf course. Um, do you know where we got our tickets? I actually don't remember, but I do remember that they were a gift. The ticket was a gift. We didn't earn them. Uh, We didn't pay for them ourselves. Somebody else earned the money that bought the tickets and then placed them around our necks that gave us access to the tournament that day. And we had an amazing day. We did nothing to earn being there. Someone else did. And they put the ticket around our neck, neck and we said, yes, thank you. And we went and enjoyed the day. Um, The message of the gospel is that our sin is so bad We cannot earn our way into the banquet. We cannot buy our way into the banquet. Someone else has to do it for us. And Jesus did that for us. By living a perfectly righteous life. And then by going to the cross to pay for all of our sins. Cleansing us of our sin once and for all. That's what puts the ticket around our neck to give us a seat at the table. It's his work, not our own. And when this truth, this gospel, good news message seeps deep into our hearts, deep down in the corners of our soul, humility begins to sprout. That's where humility comes from. Heart transformation in Jesus is the only way to true humility. That's the first thing. Second and last. When we understand ourselves as those who were brought into the banquet from the margins we will begin to have a heart for those on the margins around around us. Let me say that again. When we understand ourselves as those who are brought into the banquet from the margins, we will then begin to have a heart for those on the margins around us. Again, the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. They're mentioned twice by Jesus in this passage. 
Um, the culture in which Jesus was speaking did not value these people. Um, at worst, they were banned from day-to-day life in the community. At best, they were just ignored. They were left to beg on the side of the road. Uh, but Jesus came with his upside-down, otherworldly kingdom, and he takes the spotlight off of those who are striving for recognition and acclaim, and he shines his spotlight to the margins on those who have been forgotten and passed over. And it's amazing if you watch Jesus in the New Testament and the Gospels, he's always looking to the margins, even if it's massively disruptive. Uh, We were brought in from the margins by God's grace, and that gives us eyes for the margins around us now. And this morning, Jesus and life in this upside-down kingdom are what is on offer to you. Um, Do you see what this kingdom is like? Have you gotten a taste of it? It is not a kingdom of striving or proving yourself or comparing yourself to others or having it all together or seeking glory. It is not a kingdom like that, which is so much of our lives. And so it's easy to infuse that on the kingdom of God. That's not what it is. It's a kingdom where we come honestly confessing our need. Honestly confessing that that we're not qualified to get in the door. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And that's where Jesus meets us with his grace and mercy. Won't you receive him this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news that you sent Jesus to the margins. Far, far out. To find people who had no categories for you, were in rebellion against you, were running the opposite direction to come and rescue us. Not because of our good standing, not because of our own merit, but because of his love and mercy and grace to bring us into the banquet. Would you give us a seat at the banquet by your grace this morning? For those here who don't know you, would you give the gift of salvation? God, for those here who do know you, give us, as we're near to you, Jesus, help us to see the beauty of humility, the beauty of choosing the lowest seat. And Father, grow in us a heart for the margins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.